House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Uh, Vince Palomera, and I have to first say thank you for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you to all your listeners. And um, so, so let's start out with um, to tell everybody who you are and kind of... Um, how you, how you got to writing the book that you did? Sure. Um, yeah, my name is Vince Palomera. I'm the author of the book Survivor's Guilt, The Secret Service, and the Failure to Protect President Kennedy. And I'm 48, which is actually relatively young in the research community of JFK researchers and whatnot. I also have an interest in the Secret Service in general. Uh, make a long story very short for your listeners in the interest of time. Uh, at the tender age of 12, so we're talking 1978, I became fascinated with all things President Kennedy and also his tragic assassination. And that was, just happened to juxtapose with the Haas Select Committee, which is the second major investigation of the Kennedy assassination, the first one being the Warren Commission that finally Harvey Oswald acted alone. Well, the Haas Select Committee fascinated me, again, because I was in middle school coming of age, you know, pre-teen and then a teen. They were saying that there was a probable conspiracy. And even when I saw the grainies of Bruder film they showed on TV, it said, boy, it looked like he's shot, shot from the front. And I saw Jack Ruby, the film of him shooting Oswald. Wait a minute. There had to be more than just, you know, one man, one gun, and two lone nuts. So that leads us up through the years. And I became fascinated with the Secret Service, which eventually led to my book, because I noticed when I read many other authors' books and find books they are on, you know, the CIA, the mafia, uh, the FBI, and everything under the sun, the Secret Service pretty much got short shrift. They didn't say too much about, you know, Secret Service. In fact, Robert Groden's famous saying in lectures was, that's why they called the Secret Service secret, to gales of laughter, and people would just change the subject. And little bits and pieces, but I was like, you know what, people need to focus on this. And my coming out party was uh, summer of 1991, Jerry Rose's third decade research conference in Fredonia, New York. There was a lot of authors and researchers there, old enough to be my dad, or in some cases my granddad. I was only 25 at the time, 24 going on 25, and they were amazed at you know my look at the Secret Service. And back then it was almost exclusively secondary sources, just what I saw in the films of comparing uh, sworn testimony to the actual actions and inactions of the Secret Service. Because my thing has always been Oswald or no Oswald, conspiracy or no conspiracy. If the Secret Service would have done their normal professional job, President Kennedy would have lived and we wouldn't be talking about his tragic death all these years later. It would have been akin to maybe like the Reagan assassination attempt or the Truman assassination attempt. And again, I just, and then from that point, I was inspired to do primary research. That leads us through the 90s and the first decade of the millennium when I started contacting these gentlemen, these former agents at Groves. And a lot of this actually was even before the Internet really kicked in. It was the old legwork of uh, going through uh, newspaper archives, little deductive reasoning, networking with um, a few former agents I was lucky to get a hold of. And again, in the interest of time, but through collating all the many interviews, I, you know, speaking to these gentlemen and corresponding with them, I came away with some amazing, actually some harsh realities. And again, it leads to what I said a couple of minutes ago, that President Kennedy could have lived and should have lived past Dallas. And that's not Monday morning quarterbacking. That's not hindsight and whatnot. It is what it is. And this is based on prior trips President Kennedy took its 1961, 62, 63, even presidential security during the Eisenhower, Truman, and FDR era, believe it or not. 
President Kennedy would have lived just with that. Because so I'm not looking through rose-colored glasses. I'm not looking through 2015 lenses. I'm looking strictly at the security of four presidents, basically FDR, JFK, and specifically JFK 61 to 63. Um, everybody always asks me, Vince, what would be the one item, what would be the one thing in your research that really was the catalyst that made you realize you were on to something? And what that was was September 27, 1992. September 27, 1992 is a date that will live in infamy for me because I spoke to the head of the White House detail, Gerald Bain. Last name is spelled B-E-H-N, Bain. And this is ironically seven months before he passed away of cancer. Very uh, lucid gentleman. He had all his marbles. He was only in his early 70s. And uh, he towed the official line. He believed Oswald acted alone. This is just setting you up for what he said is amazing. He was not going against official history as far as the general outlook. And I asked him, well, sir, um, I understand from my reading, meaning my reading of William Manchester's death of President Jim Bishop's State Kennedy shot some other official stories, that President Kennedy uh, ordered you guys off the limousines and so forth, and he stopped me dead cold and said, I don't remember Kennedy ever ordering us off the limousine. If you look at the newsreels, you'll see the agents on there from time to time. I was flabbergasted. He, he allowed me to record the conversation, and thank God he did because it's a gift to history. Otherwise, you would just take my word for it. It actually is you know, audio evidence of it. I even have the, the partial uh, video on YouTube of it. It's alarming. You can hear the shock of my voice. I completely said this. I was waiting for him to say, yeah, President Kennedy ordered us off the limousine because I was going in a different tact of the Secret Service. I was still saying that they were culpable for what they could have done. But I didn't get in the realm of them lying about things. And this just opened up a whole Pandora's box. But I realized, wait a minute, the official story is that President Kennedy did order them off the limousine. And obviously with the agents not being by the car, riding on the car, or being near the car, that opened up President Kennedy to a field of fire, whether Oswald was acting alone or a conspiracy. And slowly but surely, I started to contact a lot of his colleagues because the devil's advocate me. I always think like a defense attorney. I say to myself, you know what? That's really tantalized, but then it's one guy hanging out in the breeze. You know, somebody might say, man, he was senile, or how do you know? What's his other colleagues have to say? You know, he was the number one agent. He was like the Eisenhower of the Secret Service. He wasn't a buck private. It's a guy who was in the Secret Service in 1939-1967. He was the head of the White House detail doing part of the JFK era, large part of the JFK era, and even into the LBJ era. Well, again... Slowly through the years, that was, you know, 92, but through 93, 94, 95, 96, and on and on and on into the millennium. It's like these guys were reading cue cards. I was contacting them all independently of each other. They didn't know I contacted their friends, even in, sometimes in writing. And they were all saying the same thing. President Kennedy never ordered them off the limousine. He was a very nice man. He never ordered them to do anything. And again, I hearken back to what I said before. If you read the Warren Report, if you read these official stories from William Manchester and all these other books, even like sometimes it even seems in the high school and college textbooks, they make it out like, well, President Kennedy, you know, he didn't want this protection around him. And $64 million question is, wait a minute now. He should have got this protection and they lied about it. Why would they lie? And that leads me to my book, Survivor's Guilt, The Secret Service, The Failure to Protect, Protect President Kennedy, because I basically went A to Z. I contacted every single agent Officers are still alive. You know, they passed away after I spoke to them, and some guys never got a chance to. But most of these agents I was correspond with and speak to. And it was alarming comparing official history. And not only just what happened that day in Dallas or what did not happen, as the case may be, but just comparing to prior trips. And uh, leads us up to the president. 
what do you, but, okay, so now you're, you're sort of basically putting it to uh, the Secret Service. Have you read some of the other uh, books out now, like Roger Stone and Phil Nelson, talking about oh, yeah. LBJ and what Barr McKellen, the oh, lawyer? Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah, Roger Stone's a friend, and so is Phil Nelson in both their books. I'm in um, Roger Stone's uh, paperback edition. He quotes from my book, and I'm also going to be in an upcoming documentary with him. Oh, and yeah, I, that's right, yeah. And, uh, you know, I just want to say my work is not contradictory to their work or, in fact, other people's works, for that matter, because my book, admittedly, talks out of both sides of this mouth a little bit, because I basically you walk away thinking, wait a minute, boy, the Secret Service looks really bad. I mean, they should have protected the man. If they would have did certain things not lied and blamed on President Kennedy, he would have lived. But I'm not necessarily saying the Secret Service was involved in actively trying to get him killed. Although, again, if you read certain pages, certain uh, agents I'm suspicious of a little bit more than others, you could be you could be led to that influence. And on to this day, I still toil with it. I still go back and forth. My, my first reaction is to say that the Secret Service definitely set him up, whether it was this gross negligence or it crossed the line. That's why. But I do not, I do not tease. I name names. I produce evidence. All the agents are named. All the testimonies, it's tremendously documented to sources, not just my interviews and whatnot, but other official history of uh, films, photos, uh, original testimony. But to, just to get to the heart of the matter, you know, when you were asked about um, the LBJ did it crowd and uh, other theories, no, it definitely, in fact, it actually, it, I, I hate to say it, even for the, the minority of people to believe Oswald alone, my research still holds up because it comes down to, if the gentleman, if, if Speaker Sergeant did the normal professional job, President Kennedy would have lived. But obviously, I steer towards conspiracy. I do believe there was one. I waffled one time, but I definitely believe it was a conspiracy based on some of those authors you spoke to and other ones. Doug, Doug Horn of the ARRB, Inside the ARB, tremendous books. It's five volume series. Uh, Jim Douglas's book, JFK and Unspeakable, fabulous. So while there's competing theories about exactly who pulled the trigger and who was behind the assassination, my work complements theirs because, well, let's put it this way, for example, the LBJ did it crowd. Well, there's grist for the mill in my book because obviously these agents went on to guard the new President Johnson, and some of them looked really bad. One agent in particular, I named three agents specifically called suspicious of that crossed the line, and they are Floyd Boring, who was the number two agent of the White House detailed, the, the planner of the Texas trip from the Secret Service standpoint, Bill Greer, the driver of the limousine. And Emery Roberts was the agent in charge of the fog car, the car right behind Kennedy's car, the security car. And the reason why I've, I specifically uh, targeted Emery Roberts, and it's mentioned in Roger Stone's book, is, well, when the shooting happened, he ordered the men not to move. Prior to that, at Love Field, when the motorcade began, he recalled two agents who were running with the car. And he, he gets to Parkland Hospital, and we'll go into more detail about this, but just real quick, when he gets to Parkland Hospital, JFK, his, his lifeless body, well, he usurps Roy Kellerman, his boss, his authorities. says, you stay with Kennedy, I'm going to Johnson. Well, he went to Johnson more ways than one. He became appointment secretary to LBJ at the same time he was an active agent. In the history of the Secret Service, he's the only agent ever to do that. I can't stress to you how bizarre and suspicious that is. From 1865 until 2015, all these years, crossing three centuries, by the way, 1920 21st, the Secret Service is apolitical. They're not officially Democrats or Republicans. They work for the man. They work actually for the Treasury Department, now the Department of Homeland Security. 
They're there by law to protect the president whether they like him or they hate him. They're there for that purpose. But they're not political. And for Emory Roberts to still be an active agent, okay, he's still an active agent, and he was at the same time being the appointment secretary to Johnson. There's no denying this to my book. Not only did agents uh, admit this happened, more importantly, he also got contemporary articles, one of them which I reproduced in the back of the book, talking about the press was scratching their heads and wondering why this agent was fielding questions and agreeing the Prime Minister of Japan for LBJ. What's he doing this for? And that old saying about who benefits. Uh, looks pretty suspicious that an agent who was central to Kennedy's security let him get killed and then becomes really comfy with LBJ to the point where LBJ, shortly before he left office, he gave a press conference, he gave quote in the book, and he says about Emory Roberts, because Emory Roberts couldn't be here tonight. He greets me every morning and says goodbye to me every night. And that was the exact same thing he said about Bobby Baker, his right-hand man who went to jail for him for scandal. So he said the exact same thing about Henry Roberts he did about Bobby Baker. So again, this is very complimentary to other people's you know, theories and ideas about who was involved in the assassination. But again, that's that's a tragic thing, and that's why I looked just look at the Bruder film. I said to myself, okay, it's fascinating about whether the shots came from the front or the back. I believe it came in both directions. But the bottom line is, if Bill Greer would have hit the gas, if he would have obeyed an order. Right beside him. Well, yeah, the sequence is crucial. The first shot or shots ring out. Whether you believe it came from the front or the back, let's just ignore that for this one moment. Bill Greer knows Kennedy's shot. He, he turns around and he sees him being hit. And instead of hitting the gas, he disobeys a direct order from Roy Kellerman. So he has his own instincts, his own eye. He sees Kennedy's head. He sees Governor Conley's head as well. He hears the scream, the agony, and everything. Roy Kellerman says, Get out of line. We've been hit. Again, he ignores his boss and for a second time is staring at Kennedy to the fatal headshot makes its mark. Only then does he face forward, then hit the gas when it's all over. He denied this all to the Warren Commission under, you know, under oath. He lied under oath. And Roy Kellerman buried in a footnote at William Manchester's death of the president. Roy Kellerman told Manchester, Bill Greer then looked at the back of the car. Maybe he didn't believe me. Pretty, pretty crazy. And Bill Greer had tremendous survivor's guilt, using my title, he was very, uh, he went to Jackie Kennedy. Again, Jackie Kennedy, Bill Greer, and Roy Kellerman were all interviewed by William Manchester in Manchester's book. He says that Greer went to Jackie Kennedy apart and he was crying. He was, oh my God, I didn't mean to do it. If only I'd seen it in time. If only I'd swerved the car. If only I'd hit the gas. And Dave Powers and Kenny O'Donnell, who rode in the follow-up car, admitted in their book that Bill Greer bore heavy responsibility. If he would have hit the gas, President Kennedy would have lived. Dave Powers on the YouTube video of my channel 1988 tells Charles Corral of CBS that, yes, if he would have hit the gas, President Kennedy would be alive today. That was back in 1988. But the bottom line is that night, under questioning to the FBI, he started to change his tune, and the blame the victim mantra was born. And he started to say, well, you know, we're always told to keep the cars moving at a pretty fast clip, but sometimes the president told us to slow down giving the inference that, <clears throat> well, maybe Kennedy had it coming. Did he tell him to slow down? See what I mean? Low the blame the victim. Kennedy's not allowed to, not allowed to uh, defend himself. It sounds good. He's the president, so on and so forth. And the thing about you know not having agents in the back of the car, there were um, you know inquiring reporters and citizens wondering, why weren't agents in the back of the car? In fact, Ron Gardner on ABC TV to an audience of many millions of people around the world simulcasting all three channels, being, being pulled off the networks back then. And he said, and again, this is on my YouTube channel, it's, it's amazing footage because 
The Secret Service normally are beside the car. I don't know why we don't see them in these pictures, meaning the films and photos of, this, uh, of the motorcade that was shown that day. Again, it was just fresh after Kennedy's killed on, for the whole world to see. So they were inquiring, but what got everybody off the trail of the Secret Service was the Warren Report came out and said that President Kennedy ordered the men off the car. So that got everybody. To this day, it still gets people tangled in knots. I can't tell you. There's some people that do not, do not want to face up to reality that it's not true because it sounds convenient. It's like Kennedy's favorite poem was, I have a rendezvous with death, ironically. We all have a rendezvous with death. What's the big deal about that? But the bottom line is they say he was reckless in his private life, he was reckless in his security. It sounds you know, like something from the soap operas, all dramatic, but it's not true. And again, when you look at my interviews, and more importantly, even if that's possibly more important my interviews, you look at the films and photos of prior trips, just the trip to Florida, that was the longest motorcade President Kennedy ever took domestically. It was, uh, it was like four times as long as Dallas. And agents rode on the back of the car just about the entire way. It was only at the very end of the trip when it was all over when they were coming back from McDill Air Force Base. They were going at super fast speed. They agents were on the back of the car. That, although they oftentimes were on the back of the car super fast speed. But we will get to two major points, two major parts of my research besides obviously finding out the blame the victim story is not true and the Secret Service lied about that was. Two other major discoveries were the buildings were normally guarded before the assassination, not just during JFK's era, but during the Eisenhower, Truman, and FDR eras as well. I pulled contemporary news articles at the time, you know, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s before Kennedy was shot. I, I pulled uh, Secret Service reports and quoted from them. Uh, Michael Torina wrote the Secret Service manual. If there's anybody in the world that would know, he would know. And he contributed to a book a year before the assassination said, matter of factly, whenever the president's in a motorcade, agents or police will guard the building rooftops. And he wasn't just talking about the inaugural in D.C. He was talking, matter of factly, whenever the president's on, on parade. And this is another reason why people sometimes get tied up in knots. They'll do this gotcha game. They'll look at a motorcade photo, a still photo, like from Nashville that year. Kennedy looks like a sitting duck. and say, Vince, explain yourself here. Kennedy looks as wide open in this photo as he does in Dallas. The building rooftops were guarded. There's absolutely no question about that. Nashville banner, matter of fact, states, I quoted in my book, there was President Kennedy's procession passed. Policemen were guarding the rooftops, and they were relieved at each point. Like In other words, the motorcades go by, and they're on the rooftops. As soon as it passed their quadrant, they would be relieved, and the, eight, and the officers were on the other rooftops. Also, police were intermingling in the crowd. They were facing the crowd, the armed guards facing the crowd, intermingled in the crowds. You got the building rooftops. You also had a helicopter on the route in Nashville. They were going at a fast clip, something people would not appreciate in a still photo. And again, this is how they this is how they got around the low manpower. Because admittedly, they only had like 300 some agents in the whole wide world back then. There was only approximately 34 agents in the White House detail. But they were augmented by field offices, local police, state police, sheriff's department, military intelligence, military operatives helped out for the route. But the major thing they got around were the manpower issues. Some they do to this day, but many people think it only happened because of the assassination. But they did this before. They guarded the rooftops. So for the people out there, I believe Oswald had alone, well, imagine if the building rooftops would have been guarded. They would have saw the open window and the rifle. And obviously, if there was a conspiracy, it would have been tenfold. They would have saw that before it happened. 
And again, just the trippy form, Florida, Tampa, Florida. I got the Secret Service reports floating in my book. Is actually um, reproduced in the book. And right there, it says, during the motorcade downtown, the sheriff's departments will secure the roofs of all buildings. I spoke to Russell Groover, who was a Tampa motorcycle policeman in the motorcade. And he said, matter of factly, oh yeah, all the building rooftops are guarded. Only um, one-story buildings were not guarded, but that was because they were going at a faster clip and agents were in the back of the limousine. See, it's a whole bunch of, it's not, it's not as black and white as people want to make it out to be. When they were going slower, agents walked beside the car or were riding, you know, on the back of the handholds. They had the motorcycle coverage, the good number on both sides of the flank, Kennedy, when that was a protective uh, situation. You had uh, agents or police or military lining the street, facing the crowd or intermingling in the crowds themselves. You had that building coverage. In fact, Chief Bauman, uh, the, the first director of the Secret Service under Kennedy, he was there from, ironically, November 22nd, 1948, until he was fired by Kennedy. We'll get to that in a moment. And he was replaced by James Riley, former head of the White House detail. He came out with a blistering criticism of the Secret Service in December 63 and said that it was normally standard protocol for the buildings to be guarded and the windows to be watched. And he couldn't understand why this didn't happen. This happened on all, all you know, out-of-town motorcades. So this is amazing stuff, but again, it took somebody like me to dredge the archives to find these things. You weren't going to find these in, you know, over-the-counter books. No one brought these things up before, and a lot of times people got confused and tried to compare present-day security and try to look back at the past, and that's a fallacy. You cannot do that. That's not what I'm doing. And it's easy to look at a still photo and think that Kennedy's wide open on some other motorcades. Now, granted, there's a lot of motorcades where obviously the show of forces up. And you can see a lot of motorcades. I quote my book about all the trips where Kennedy was very well guarded, ostensibly. You could see the agents by the car and so on and so forth. But there's certain trips where it doesn't look like he has a lot of security. But again, how that was, they got around that was those rooftops were guarded. Okay, our guest tonight is Vince Palomera, and the subject is the Secret Service and the failure to protect President Kennedy. We'll be back right after these words. Okay, we're back now with Vince Palomera, and... Now, what can you tell us about Dallas? Now, that wasn't a particularly popular city for Kennedy, was it? Dallas was a city Kennedy was warned about. <clears throat> Adlai Stevenson was struck with a sign spat upon. He warned Kennedy not to go to Dallas. Pierre Salinger, William Fulbright, Senator, the list goes on. And even JFK himself said, we're heading to that country. That's what he thought of Dallas, I mean, the right with John Burke Society, the wanted for treason posters, the welcome Mr. Kennedy sarcastic article, and, and so on. And yet, official stories, is chapter two of my book, official story is, there were no threats found in Dallas. This is incredible. In today's day and age, this is one time, this is a good modern day analogy. <clears throat> Every time in America, you know there's hate towards Obama, you know people have said stuff, even in, quote, jest, you know, in, in flagrant, nasty things, illegal things, I might add. Yeah. And worse put the thing back in, in November of 63 when he was coming out pro-civil rights. He wanted to end the war in Vietnam. And there was a section of the South that hated his guts. Worse put the thing there was not one solitary soul in Dallas. But again, that's why, again, that's why I explore all avenues because that could have been the ostensible reason why security was stripped. They could say, whoa, we didn't find any threats. But Roy Kellerman, to his credit, under oath to the Warren Commission, Gerald Ford, later President of the United States, he admitted it was very unusual not to find threats and doubts. And my thing is, and this is chapter two of my book, I think they did find threats, but they buried them. And again, this is why 
I admitted right from the top we talked about my book, you get a little bit of both of my book. You get me going through agent by agent and I come away with gross negligence, but then the board, book borders on crossing the line into conspiracy. And I'm, I'm still tangled in knots myself when people ask me, Vince, what do you think? Do you think Secret Service involved in the conspiracy? I have three, those three suspects I mentioned. Beyond that, I, I, it's hard to say 50 years later who was really culpable, who was just following orders. And, and why this is even trickier is because that's why I had to do an agent-by-agent agent comparison, had a little mini-biography and explore every agent was that several of these agents, maybe many, but at least several on the record, angry at President Kennedy for his private life. This came out in the late 90s, Seymour Hersh's book, and some of my interviews corroborated it. Just keep this in mind. One of the agents rode in the fog park, feet away from Kennedy. His job to protect President Kennedy. He called Kennedy a procurer of prostitutes. There's some other nasty things about him in my book. If this is a guy that's supposed to guard the president, all he's got to do is sit back for a couple seconds let it happen. Oops, oh well. And you keep in mind the morals of the early 60s. We can look at it now and say, oh, so he slept around, no big deal. But back then, adultery was a dirty word, divorce was a dirty word. This is the president of the United States. And these guys, some of them, were enraged and they admitted they're on the record. And we're worse than think, wait, these guys are supposed to guard him. And they have these kind of ill will towards them. And then you get into the whole thing about some of these agents might have been friendly towards LBJ, a little too friendly, mad at Kennedy for civil rights stand, mad at him because it looked like he wanted to be a dove instead of a hawk on Cuba and on Vietnam. You know, they wanted to put a Texan in the White House. Again, that's why I had to do what I had to do. You could not write a book like this and be general. You couldn't be vague. You had to name names. You had to produce evidence. You had to corroborate because otherwise people would walk away and say, you know what? I just can't pitch the Secret Service doing these things. This doesn't make sense because everybody looks at them as the good guys. You know, the FBI has a taint of evil because of Hoover. Everybody knows the CIA has a taint because of their assassination attempts, and obviously the mafia and other suspects. When people think of the Secret Service, hey, these are the good guys, they're the bodyguards. So it's a natural knee-jerk reaction. But I can break that down even further. Nine of the eight strength the night before Dallas, including everybody's so-called hero, Clint Hill, he's a false hero, He's no hero at all. He got there when it was all said and done. It was all over with. He got to the back of the car. Jackie got in and out of the car of her own volition. He was a first lady agent, not a JFK agent in the proper sense of the term. He was awarded a medal and got all this hoopla afterwards. But in World War II, medals weren't given out to attempts. You either succeeded or you didn't. This guy drank the night before. Everyone made such a big deal about Carnahan in Columbia a few years ago. But the president was a farm. Well, ironic, it was the same number of agents, nine. Clint Hill is one of the nine agents, and it cost the nation its president. You know, sleep deprivation and alcohol consumption wreak havoc. These guys didn't go to bed until between 3 and 5 a.m. <laughs> they had to report for duty for 8 a.m., and Lord knows how much they really drank. I think it's a limited hangout. You know, it's like a joke. You know, how much did you drink? Oh, I just had one beer. I just had one scotch and water. Well, there's some reporters reported in my book saying these guys were bombed. They were drinking pure Everclear alcohol. Some of the other ones saw them inebriated, said it was not the first time they were inebriated. So we get into a whole ball of other things. That's why I had to go through and say this agent's guilty, this agent's not guilty, this agent was just fallen orders, this one was just inebriated. I had to do that because there's just no way you could tackle something. It's very controversial. It's rubbed some people the wrong way, I know that. And it, it rubbed um, two people in particular the wrong way. Uh, I am responsible. This is not ego. This is, this is the God's honest truth. I am responsible for Clint Hill and Gerald Blaine writing their books. These guys at the time were in their late 70s, long retired, fly fishing in Colorado. Clint Hill used to wear it as a badge of honor. He'd never write a book. 
other than Mike Wallace, CBS, he basically didn't speak to a soul. Certainly no private researchers. Well, I was bold enough to send him a 22-page letter, certified, return receipt requested. I received, it was a real coup 10 years ago, from a colleague of his, Lynn Meredith, who's now deceased, gave me his private address and phone number. Again, unlisted phone number, unlisted address. That's why no one could contact him unless they were Mike Wallace. People on the street didn't know where he lived and how to get a hold of him. Well, I was bold enough to send him a Cliff Notes version of my book at the time. Basically, a thumbnail sketch like I'm doing now. I called him. He was livid, didn't want to talk to me. And then, lo and behold, out of nowhere, I'm starting to get feelers that, hey, did you know that Gerald Blaine, and it turns out his best friend, Gerald Blaine, he served to go to Denver Field Office in the 50s, and they've been friends for 50-some years, is coming out of the book about the Kennedy detail. I'm like, what? Because that's what the Gerald Blaine as well. well. I called Gerald Blaine. He starts quoting from my letter, my private letter, eyes only to Clint Hill. I'm thinking, oh, my God. He shared my letter, either through fax or email or just quoting from it. Who knows? But that's when everything had just opened up another Pandora's box. And these guys came out blaming President Kennedy again, going against what the Gerald Blaine told me. He, he echoed all his colleagues and said President Kennedy never interfered with their actions at all, admitted he wrote on the back of the car many times as Gerald Blaine in Germany and Tampa and so on, or his colleagues did in Tampa. And here he is saying the polar opposite in his book of lying. And, and, and he's also talking about me, about naming me on several pages. It's very obvious. People have read it and said, he's very defensive. It's obviously he's talking about you without naming you. And then all of a sudden, Clint Hill comes out with his book. He wrote the forward to that book and contributed. Now, Clint Hill has another book coming out this year. All told, that'll be his fourth book. Uh, there was a movie in the work that got scuttled. Uh, but that's another story. So I think it's the movie Parkland bombed. Any movie on the assassination kind of went, you know, down the tubes. But anyway, bottom line, these old men are out there now, book tours around the world, and they're espousing this blame the victim mantra again. And that's why it's a current event, even though it's 51 years later. These guys are out there putting the blame on President Kennedy because they don't want the world to look at them with a harsh eye. Everyone was mad about some of these later Secret Service scandals. The true Secret Service scandal, the Secret Service scandal, the original Secret Service scandal, is what happened on November 22nd, 1963. And again, that's not 2020 vision. Well, what do you think about the Warren Commission and the report? Uh, yeah. I join millions of other people and think it's a load of crap. Uh, I can use other words, but I'm trying to keep it clean. <laughs> I, I think basically what it boils down to is it was, you know, America was a very naive country back in 63 and 64. Like my dad told me, my dad's still living. He told me that, you know, at the time, Vinny, and they called me Vinny on bits. He said, you know, 20 people could have killed Kennedy. We were so devastated with grief. The details went in one ear, not the other. That's what they were hoping for. You know, keep in mind, I'm not getting off on a tangent here. There's people got to remember this context of the time. The Beatles came to America in 1964. The Vietnam War became a hot war in July, after July and August of, uh, August of 64. The election was going on. People were grieving, but moving on. And, it, you know, there wasn't Woodward Bernstein. People believed the word of government, like the word of God, and especially the media, the lapdogs reporting everything. There weren't people on the Internet. There was no Internet. There was no hippies. Everybody believed everything, so they're coming out saying Oswald acted alone. Sure, there were some people skeptical, but they kept their skepticism to themselves until people like Mark Lane, Harold Weisberg came out. And even they were viewed as kooks by a lot of people for a long time. So that's how they got away with it. How they got away with it was they played on the same thing I talked about earlier. Everybody's first reaction is to say the Secret Service are the good guys. Why would they do anything? Well, back then, 
people's first reaction was, oh, come on. There's no way our government, our government's not a banana republic. There's no banana republic here. There's no way they would have killed Kennedy in a coup. It has to be like his lone nuts. Ne- never mind the fact that the Truman assassination attempt was a conspiracy of two gentlemen. Never mind the fact that the Lincoln conspiracy, that was a conspiracy of multiple people, even though it was only a lone shooter. But that's, you know, and obviously there was many attempts on De Gaulle's life and many coups around the world, but somehow we think we're, uh, we're special in America and those things don't happen. I don't know why. But again, that was the context of the time. That's why the Warren Report got away with it. Now, after Watergate and Vietnam mess and everything, that's from the counterculture. That's why the Hostelic Committee in the late 70s did their investigation. People were, and after all the books that came out too, that's when people started to wait a there's got to be more of this. This is Bruder film uh, was viewed in 1975 for the first time. People saw his head violently going backwards to the left. It's like the Rodney King video. It's so obvious he's being beat against his will. There's no way around it. We see his Bruder film. Real common sense tells he's shot from the front. And then we can go into the thing about how there's no way one man could have gotten off all those shots and they just came from one direction only. There's just no way. And then you go into the whole thing about the, the car slowing down and didn't have evasive action and so on and so forth. But the bottom line is, it was it was an evolution. It was an evolution of thought of you know the country and the world. Although there were skeptics along the way, but it's breaking down those barriers of denial. And again, the CIA has a lot of good people. It was the bad element. The FBI has a lot of good people. It was this J. Edgar Hoover and some of his minions? And the Secret Service is a great organization. I mean, 95 to 99 percent of these people are squeaky clean. And, and I'm a big fan of the agency in general. I'm just talking about that day in Dallas. And again, it's not just because the president was killed. It's because he could have been prevented. And, and the fact that, the, and what makes me mad is they put the blame back on the dead president who couldn't defend himself to the point where Gerald Blaine, in his book, makes up this fictitious meeting that happened on the day of Kennedy's funeral. All the agents are conveniently dead when he's writing the book in 2010, by the way. But unbeknownst to him, I. People something knows him or not, but I spoke to those guys that got him in writing on an audio, and they're telling me the exact opposite of what he's espousing in this fictional meeting. He's basically saying that they got together, did Kennedy's funeral, and says, "Look, boys, we know President Kennedy ordered the agents off the car. We can't let the world know that because we cannot let the world blame the president for his own assassination." Now, what makes that so comical is by putting that in the book. Hello, now the whole world is going to blame President Kennedy, and the whole thing has never been a secret. Because since 1964, the Warren Report, Clint Hill testified to the Warren Commission, Arlen Specter. It's been serialized in newspapers and other books ever since. It's this mantra, Kennedy's to blame, Kennedy's to blame. He didn't want the bubble top. He didn't want the agents on the car. He didn't want the motorcycles on the car. It's all bull. No truth to it at all. Sam Kinney, the driver of the fob car, spoke to me on three different occasions. He was adamant to me that he was solely responsible for the bubble top's removal. He also has corroboration by his own Secret Service report and his interview to the Hostelite Committee that only came out in the late 90s. He said he was solely responsible for the bubble pop's removal. had nothing to do with Kennedy or Kenny O'Donnell or anyone else. Kennedy had nothing to do with the limiting of motorcycles. If motorcycles would have been around that car, they would have been in shielding formation, armed guards with, uh, you know, cr- trained criminal investigative eyes, where they are pushed away from Kennedy's car the, the day before they were told by the Secret Service to no way pass the rear wheels of the limousine, making them totally useless and open up Kennedy to a crossfire and conveniently making sure the police didn't get hit. And then without the agents being on the car or running beside the car, well, they're not going to get hurt and they're leaving Kennedy wide open. Like Bill Greer slowing down the car and looking back and disobeying a direct order and lying about that was the, even Gerald Posner and Vince Bugliosi has said that Greer bears heavy responsibility for the success of the assassination. 
And again, without those rooftops being guarded, uh, normally we wouldn't need this brooder. Normally, press photographers and still and moving pictures, like even live television feeds, there's a flatbed truck that normally rides in front of the limousine. You can see it in a countless motor case. Well, it was canceled the last minute Love Field. Dr. Berkeley would normally rode right beside the president, either the lead car or the secret star ballpark. He was told at Love Field not to ride by the car, and he protested, but it was too late. He said it only happened one other time, and it was in Rome. But Rome was a model of tremendous security. Many, many motorcycles, agents riding on the back of a car, and a fast clip, building rooftops were guarded. And again, it just, you don't have to go any further. I always tell people this. You don't have to go any further than the trip to Florida, which is the few short days before Dallas. And I'll just, you know, just your listeners can the time. This is what happened in camp and it did not happen in Dallas. Agents rode on the back of the car. A military aide rode in the front seat between the driver and agent charge. Well, that military aide was asked for the first time to not ride in the car by the Secret Service. The Secret Service told him they wanted to have President Kennedy, you know, open for political purposes. It's ridiculous. Again, I mentioned the press photographers normally had a flatbed truck in front of the window. It was canceled last minute. Normally a press bus or buses were closer to the car. That was, they were put farther back in the motorcade. A lot of these gentlemen didn't even see the assassination. They just heard the shots. Normally the number one agent and number two agent were on the trips, Gerald Bain and Floyd Boring. They had a third stringer on the Texas trip. This is tantamount to going to the Super Bowl and benching Tom Brady and having the third string guys start the game. Makes no sense. Well, here's a town, a hot town. The Secret Service did admit it was a hot town, meaning that they did admit to the specific threats, but they knew it was definitely not Boston, Massachusetts. This was definitely hostile territory in a general sense. And again, JFK himself said we're heading to nut country. And, and the reason why President Kennedy told his wife last night would have been a hell of a night to assassinate a president and, and had other ruminations about assassination through those short days is because he got wind of assassination uh, threats against him. And that's basically what this boils down to. This was a city that was a hot city by Secret Service standards. Kennedy even said we're heading to nut country. He ruminated about assassinations to his wife. And the reason why he did was he was much aware of threats on his life. This was a moving crime. There was a canceled motorcade in Chicago due to threats. There was threats in Florida and Miami and Tampa. Specifically, he rode um, the majority of the uh, trip in a helicopter in Miami. Sam Kenny even admitted to me there was an organized threat, organized crime threat in, in Miami. In Tampa, there was a six pages, not Miami, there were six pages worth of threats and secret service reports that came out only in the late 1990s. A lot of this information only came out in the 90s and early millennium, by the way. And it was only like people like me, I might have been the only one in certain cases, to, to find this stuff out. Because you had to dig, you had to pay money, you had to dig. If you're a John Q. citizen out there, you're just going to buy a book of at Barnes & Noble, you're not going to sit there and think about, well, the Kennedy's motorcade didn't really look like this or that or the other. And like I said earlier, there's a, there's a fallacy when people look at still photos. You know, there's many trips where the secrets, the, the protection of the president was very overt. You can see the agents at the back of the car, many motorcycles, etc., etc. But there's certain trips where you don't see that overt protection because security is both covert and overt. And sometimes to not look like we're living in a dictatorship with all these palace guards, what they did was, because of manpower issues, by those agents or police or military in, you know, sort of subtle positions on building rooftops and intermingle with the crowd, they were able to give the protection without looking like a police state. And that's what they did on many trips. 
And again, in a still photo, you can't appreciate the speed of the cars and so on and so forth. And again, with good security to this day, good intelligence, I should say, whenever a president goes, this is true in Kennedy's time, it's true before and it's true after. Whenever a president goes anywhere, they check the research files for any potential threats to the president. In other words, you know, the president goes to Detroit, they want to make sure in advance, is there anybody who wished ill of the president? And they hunt those guys down and either jail them or at least guard them, keep them under watch until the president leaves town. Well, again, like I mentioned earlier, we're supposed to believe there was no threats in Dallas and, and this happened. It's, just, it's totally crazy. An agent I spoke to, Abraham Bolden, said it, it, he doesn't buy it. It's very unusual. Roy Kelvin said the same thing. That's what my book, Survivor's Guilt, The Secret Service, The Failure to Protect President Kennedy, is all about. It's a combination of basically 20-plus years of research, interviewing and corresponding with a lot of these former agents. I compare official history and, and, and name names and, and go down the list of all Kennedy's trips, 61, 63, even prior presidents. And it was a really illuminating for all the things I discovered that, again, went against official history. And, uh, why do you think the media doesn't uh, follow up? And why, why do you think there's a kind of a, uh, well, it's kind of a conspiracy thought. So anytime something comes out about Kennedy, there's a general kind of, oh, well, you know, that's just a conspiracy. Or nobody really takes it serious. Yeah, I mean, I know what you mean. There's a contingent of people that do, obviously, the serious authors and researchers like me and so on. But, yeah, the John Q. Citizen, uh, they probably saw the JFK movie by Oliver Stone. They probably think that there was more than one gunman, but they believe it, but they don't want to know it. And what I mean by that is to think too hard about it makes you think, wait a minute, this isn't the government I was told about. This is like a banana republic, and here's a part of your brain doesn't want to accept that. So you go, oh, these conspiracy theorists, it's quote-unquote fun to ruminate about conspiracy, but they don't want to really think too hard about it because it makes you realize all the other, what, nine presidents since Kennedy wouldn't have happened. There wouldn't have been no LBJ. He would have been in prison for all the scandals as vice president. He never would have been president if Kennedy was killed. So he got that. There would have been no Vietnam War as we know it. That That's huge. There would have been no Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon never rose like a sphinx from the ashes. He was politically dead after he lost to Governor Brown in California. Then he becomes president, so we wouldn't have the counterculture and Watergate and all the distrust in government and so on. So you can go no further than that. But then we can go further than that. You wouldn't have had Gerald Ford. Gerald Ford was only vice president because Agnew, Nixon's vice president, resigned disgraced, and you know, Ford was never elected vice president or president, and he was obviously a former member of the Warren Commission and so on. Yeah. And then Carter was only a back Carter was only there because he was a backlash against all the scandal in Washington and et cetera, et cetera. So it was a domino effect. So it really changed things. It really, really did. And it wasn't like, you know, JFK was an older gentleman who passed away from a stroke or had, you know, complications like, you know, President Wilson and other presidents and so on. This was a guy that was only, what, 40, 45, 46? Yeah. And he was gunned down in public. And I think it sent a message. President Kennedy was the last president who couldn't be bought and sold. He was a very rich man. He donated all his salary to charity. Couldn't be bought by special interest. You know, he had his quirks. He had his faults. But... The reason why he had the libido he did was because two things. He was a devastatingly handsome man. He was the leader of the free world. As Henry Kissinger said, power is the ultimate aphrodisiac. He had women throwing themselves at him. He wasn't going after them. They were coming after him. He thought he was only going to live a short amount of time because he was read the last rite several times after being a World War II hero, almost dying there, almost died from his back operations, and a myriad of health complications. 
qualifications. And he was, you know, better or worse, you know, he learned from his dad. His dad was real scallywag when it came to women and so on. So you had that. And, you know, it just created it. You know, but, but like I said, uh, he was a good man and he wanted to change a lot of things. And it, there would be no civil rights. LBJ was the president when the Civil Rights Act was passed, but that was a Kennedy bill all the way. So, again, it just it changed so many things. And that's why people, you know, don't want to think too hard about it because like a part of it. Who do you think did it? But people don't, like Donald Sutherland, J.K. Moody, they don't want to ask the real questions. Why? Why was Kennedy killed? Why was it covered up? Who's responsible? Because it's just too, it just goes against your, you know, it just it crosses some lines people don't want to get into. And, so, yeah, yeah, and then talk, talk about, okay, so now the documentary coming up. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, sure. Yeah, actually, I have a few, uh, in the interest of time, I'll summarize real quick. Uh, well, I got one that's technically out now called A Coup in Camelot. Uh, it was shown at the Texas Theater. It's going to uh, see a light on DVD. It's, uh, there's a trailer on YouTube about A Coup in Camelot. And myself, I have like a 15-minute segment, Doug Horn, and some other authors, Barry Ernest and so on. It's a very pro-conspiracy movie, and people have loved it. It's all at the Texas Theater. And it should be making DVD hopefully this year. Another one I have is called The Man Behind the Suit. As associate producer, it's about Robert DeProspero, former head of Reagan's Detail. He was in the Secret Service for a long time, and he's one of the... It's the, opposite, it's the polar opposite of something you would expect from me, because I told you I'm a big fan of the Secret Service. And this shows what a Secret Service agent should be. This guy's tremendous. That's coming out hopefully this year. Um, another one I have is called Kill King 63. These are all filmed. This is waiting to be released. That should be making DVD soon. But the big one I think you're referring to is Roger Stone's that is yet to be filmed. It's hopefully this summer he'll commence myself and uh, several other people. And I think his leads towards a pro LBJ did it stance. Yeah. And obviously it's a very, these will be commercial DVDs. I think everyone's trying to look for wider release on television and theaters and festivals, but at the very least, these will all be commercial DVDs you can order on Amazon and so on. Yeah. Well, excellent. Um, any Anything else you'd recommend for people? Yeah. Um, what I would say is, if you're interested in the Kennedy assassination related things, obviously, you know, common sense, you know, go online. There's a lot of information on the Internet, on YouTube especially, but there's a lot of blogs. I would I would recommend staying away from news groups. There's too much arguing, infighting, and just plain silliness. You, you lose IQ points when you go to those news forums. There's too much. It's just ridiculous. But, yeah, YouTube and, and, and blogs in general. Um, some really good books I can recommend are the five-volume Inside the ARRB by Doug Horn, JFK uh, and the Unspeakable by James Douglas, the Last Word, which is the last book by Mark Lane. Uh, on the Secret Service angle, I humbly recommend my book, you know, Survivor's Guild, The Secret Service, and the Third to Protect President Kennedy. Uh, I'd say the last five, ten years have been the best books that have ever come out in this case, bar none. The level of scholarship research, it used to be back in the old days we were theorizing. Before the documents released by the ARB, before the Internet kicked in, people really were doing dogged research. With the exception of maybe Carol Weisberg, but even he had his limitations for what the information he had. People do a lot of theorizing and guessing. That game's long over with. If you're not coming out with documented works, people don't bother. So the, the research has taken tremendous uh, upswing, but it is, you know, we're in the 21st century and people have other things in their mind and now we're in the post 9 11 world, so people really have some things in their mind besides just their own backyards are worried about terrorism and other things. I just understand that, but keep in mind, this was the crime of the 20th century and it affected so much that came afterward. You know, Kennedy, 
uh, didn't do what he did in the missile crisis, none of us would be here. He saved the world, World War III, and nuclear annihilation. And again, the Civil Rights Act was really his bill. He wanted to end the war in Vietnam. So for all his foibles, we deserve to know why you know the last president who was ever killed was assassinated. And I think has been by the Secret Service, but there's a lot of other information out there. And I just say just look for those DVDs coming out. Really good books out there. Go for the most recent ones. That's your best bet. Yeah. And how do people get a hold of you? Okay. Well, you can put my name, Vince Palomar, and Google. Just Google my name, and my blogs come up a lot of information. I'm on Twitter and Facebook as well. You can also email me at vincebethel at yahoo.com. That's vincebethel at yahoo.com. So it's B-I-N-C-E-B-E-T-H-E-L at yahoo.com. But you'll find this information. You just Google my name on page one. It all comes up. Excellent. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.